Last night, Jaya talked at the beginning about listening to a talk and how sometimes we might want fewer words or more words. I'd like to just offer a little reflection or suggestion about maybe ways to practice with listening to a Dharma talk. We can sit in meditation and simply receive the sounds and I've done this at times where I kind of just let the words wash through and every now and then there'll be some phrase that just really lands, really resonates. So that's one way, not to try to track the talk, but just to be available to receive the words and the understanding of what the words mean. Another way is to be really attentive to the content, understanding the content, but at the same time, be very curious about how that content is affecting you in the moment. a skill, this capacity to receive content and feel the resonances of that content. That's really taking in the Dharma. In the suttas, it talks about different circumstances under which people become awakened. Listening to a talk is one of those circumstances. Sitting in meditation is one of those circumstances. Reflecting on the Dharma internally is one of those circumstances. And giving a Dharma talk is one of those circumstances. One of my very favorite suttas is a story of a teacher who was offering a talk on the topic that I'm going to be speaking about. And he was talking to a a group of other monastics And they were asking him a lot of very detailed questions. And he was explaining and exploring with them how he sees experience. And the last line of the sutta says something like, and while this discourse was being given, all of the bhikkhus listening to the discourse became awakened. And the venerable one giving the discourse also became awakened. That's inspiring to me, (laughs) that possibility 
May it be so. <laughs> to me, it also points out how the, the talk can be a, dar- it's a Dharma reflection. And exploring it myself as I'm offering it. And so can it be received as a reflection? Received and opened to, how does this land? Not so much in the thinking realm, arguing about it or figuring it out, but just the, there may be some parts that land and resonate, other parts that don't. And you don't have to figure them out. It's just kind of let them go in, let them wash through. I talked about Dharma rain the other day. So let it, let it drizzle in. And at some point, that teaching, that language may arise again in a time or a place where it really flourishes leads to understanding and insight. So the topic tonight is exploring the five aggregates and the experience of selfing. Last week, Tara spoke about the uh, in the three characteristics, Tara spoke about anicca and anatta, and Kim spoke the next evening about dukkha. These characteristics of all experience, everything that we experience, is impermanent, changing constantly, at different paces, perhaps or at least the perception of different paces of change. Experience, because it's impermanent, is unreliable as a place where we can say, yep, that's where I'm going to be permanently happy. I could hold on to that. If I could have that, I could be permanently happy. Because we can't have anything permanently because it's all changing. Dukkha unreliable, and not self. All experience is not self, not mine, not who I am, not myself. Tara spoke about ways we might open to this truth of anatta. Sometimes it happens kind of by surprise or or spontaneously, simply through meeting experience. Just the continuity of mindfulness. And we, we touch into a space where we're just seeing the changing nature of experience and there's no one here doing any of it. We're just seeing that unfold. And so sometimes the practice opens us to understandings, just kind of like a dropping into an understanding of not-self. And there's another way in to exploring this. 
the Zen teacher Dogen has a, had a famous quote. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. So this is pointing to an exploration not of can I find anatta, can I experience anatta, but what is this experience that I think is self? To explore that experience. We feel it, we feel a sense of self at times, sometimes strongly, and the encouragement is be curious about that. What is that like? Is it what we think it is? A sense of self, we don't usually investigate it. We just take it for granted to be what it seems to be presenting itself as, a solid, stable, something that's here. And we don't actually begin to be curious about it. We believe it without question. Don't even reflect on it. But as we start to be curious about it, to bring Dhamma-vichaya, that aspect of investigation, to this experience of the sense of self. The sense of self is not nothing. It is a, an arising experience. And so we investigate it like we investigate any other arising experience like an arising emotion or an arising thought. Oh, here's the sense of self. What's that? What's happening there? What's that like? As we do that, it begins to reveal its nature as impermanent, conditioned, and unreliable not a thing that we think it is. So as we explore curiosity about this sense of self, we begin to directly, experientially understand, feel into, recognize that this sense of self is not what we assume it to be. The Buddha talked about this sense of self as arising in a process we could call it the selfing process he used the phrase i making and my making and he really talked about this in relationship to another teaching called the five aggregates. We've mentioned the five aggregates, but not gone into much depth on them yet. I think Kim Kim mentioned them in her um, description of dukkha because the 
One of the definitions of dukkha is the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. And the five aggregates can be understood as basically the processes of body and mind, everything that we're experiencing, the tumbling on of our mental and physical processes. And clinging to that is suffering. So these mental and physical processes called the aggregates, the five aggregates, are form, which is the physical realm, body, and all of the physical realm around us. So form. And then the other four aggregates are mental mental processes. And the aggregates are understood actually to be both processes of body and mind and also the results of those processes. So the mental processes, feeling, it's understood to be both the process by which feeling happens and the result, the pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant aspect of experience. So form, feeling, perception, which Jaya spoke about last night, mental formations, volitional formations, and consciousness. these These are the five aggregates, and I'll describe them in a little bit more depth in just a moment. The Buddha spoke about our experience in different ways, kind of for different purposes, I think, pointed to different aspects of our experience. So one of these ways to kind of look at the body-mind processes is through these five aggregates, this the physical aggregate form and these four mental processes that make up our experience. Another way that the Buddha spoke about our experience was through the six sense bases. The five physical sense bases plus the sense base of the mind. Our experience can also be seen in those terms. This exploration of the aggregates, the Buddha particularly pointed to the value of seeing how we cling to them because that clinging to these aspects of experience is where we tend to create a sense of self. So recognizing these aggregates in our experience is something we're already doing. We've talked about most of these in various ways. Form, body, the four elements, the physical experience of hardness, softness, all of that uh, realm of physical experience, plus uh, the realm of the, it's said, the way it's described is 
form and the form derived from those basic elements, which includes sight, sound, smell, taste. So form is also the, the sight and the contact with the eye. Is, it's touching form, sound, the, the wave through the, the atmosphere. It's actually, that's form. It's, it's, it's vibrating the air and then it touches our eardrum and impacts form to create the sound. So this is all understood to be form. And then feeling, we talked about that at some length. The, the process of feeling, sensing whether experience is pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And here's where the, that we, we begin to really see this sense of the aggregates being both the process by which something happens and the, the result of that process. So in the suttas, there's one description of these aggregates as verbs as opposed to nouns. We could think of the pleasant experience, unpleasant experience, neither pleasant nor unpleasant experience as being kind of the what of our experience in the realm of feeling. But in the, in the sutta, it's, it, there's this person asking the question, why is it called feeling? And the response is, it feels. That's why it's called feeling. What does it feel? It feels pleasant. It feels unpleasant. It feels neither pleasant nor unpleasant. With perception, a kind of a similar thing. Jaya spoke about perception last night, this recognizing aspect of experience, that we recognize form and color in the realm of sight. Perception kind of gets layered on itself in a way. The initial impact, the initial contact with the eye door around perception. So the result of perception, the result of the process of perception is this recognition of something. But with the photons hitting the eye, you know, the first thing that happens is that there's this contact and there's uh, the recognition of something being seen. And the, what's seen initially is really just form and color, but we often don't see that part we very quickly will see a person or a book or a plant or something like that. Sometimes when the mind gets really quiet, we can see the kind of layered nature or staged nature of perception happening. On one retreat, I was sitting outside and I turned my head and my my eyes landed on a shape. And the mind kind of clicked into recognizing the shape, jagged. Then it clicked into recognizing the color, green. Then it clicked into recognizing leaf, just like that. So this process of, it's a process of perception 
And the sutta also describing this as, why is it called perception? It perceives, that's why it's called perception. What does it perceive? It perceives color, it perceives form, it perceives sound. We can see this in our experience, this process of perception, particularly as the mind gets a little more quiet, you might notice this, like sitting in the hall. I think I spoke about this the other night, the, the hearing a sound of maybe the turkeys. And the first thing is just hearing, but you might, you might notice the mind then say the word turkey. And think, well, my mind is labeling things. That is also sometimes the way perception works. It puts the word into our mind. It's recognizing experience. And then consciousness, another aspect of mental experience. This is often understood to just be the very basic knowing of experience, usually defined in terms of the six sense bases. Every sense base, there's, with every sense base, there's the object and the knowing of it, the sight and the knowing of it, the sound and the knowing of it, the taste and the knowing of it. We can actually begin to notice that difference between the experience and the knowing of it. We may talk more about this as we go on. And then volitional formations, mental formations, the fifth of the aggregates. This is the whole realm of mental experience that we often think of as the mental, mental activity, thoughts, emotions, beliefs, ideas, views, states of mind. So this includes things like states of concentration, peace, anger, irritation, boredom, ideas, beliefs, views. This is a big territory. And we've talked about working with this aspect of experience, the kind of the what of this, the mental formations, the what of the experience. By talking about working with emotions, working with difficult states, working with the hindrances, working with the seven factors of awakening, all of this is mental formation. Working with thoughts. Exploring being aware of thoughts. Thoughts are a mental formation. The process of volitional formations is described in a little bit more depth in in that sutta where the aggregates are described as verbs. I'm going to read Tanasaro Bhikkhu's translation because it works with the wordplay that the Buddha used for this particular aggregate. So Tanasaro Bhikkhu translates this aggregate, which often translated as mental formation, 
He translates it as fabrication, something constructed in the mind. All of these, all of these formations are both constructed in the mind. They result from conditioning, and then they also construct. They tumble forward. They construct. So, and why are they called fabrications? Because they fabricate fabricated things. Thus, they are called fabrications. What do they fabricate as a fabricated thing? For the sake of form, they fabricate form as a fabricated thing. For the sake of feeling, they fabricate feeling as a fabricated thing. For the sake of perception, they fabricate perception as a fabricated thing. For the sake of fabrications, they fabricate fabrications as a fabricated thing. For the sake of consciousness, they fabricate consciousness as a fabricated thing. So what this is pointing to is that the mental activities in our mind, all of the thoughts, ideas, beliefs, views, emotions, wholesome states, condition the rest of our experience. Arising in this moment, they shape the next moment. How can we see this? We actually can see this. So for instance, something like anger, the arising of anger. Anger shapes the body. It shapes the form, often resulting in experience of heat, pressure in the body. So that mental formation fabricates the body in a particular way, maybe even distorting the face. Feelings, feeling tone usually becomes unpleasant when anger is arising. The perceptions that we have, how we perceive things, become distorted through a filter of anger. We may perceive somebody attacking us or perceive someone doing us wrong as we have this filter. Our consciousness is actually directed by filters like this. When we are angry, we tend to take in things that confirm this confirmation bias. You know, it's like when we're in a particular state, of mind, our consciousness tends to pull things out of experience that confirm that state and not attend to ignore things that don't confirm that state. So our consciousness, what, what consciousness receives to be experienced is shaped by our mental formations. And Anger, this arising of anger, tends to construct more anger, the mental formation of more anger. So this is something that we can also be curious about, seeing the conditioning nature of how our mind states affect our experience. We've been talking about this, noticing, like, how do thoughts affect your body? This is where this teaching comes from. (laughs) 
So the five aggregates are happening all the time. Right now, while you're listening, the five aggregates are tumbling on. There's sound waves coming through the room that are hitting the ear. Form, contacting form on your eardrum. That resonance is perceived as voice and through the process of perception and a lot of conditioning, there's understanding of the words. So there's the perception, understanding the meaning of the words. And then there's the feeling tone. In this case, probably more related to the perception of the meaning rather than the actual vibratory energy of the sound. The feeling of how it lands. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Maybe related to mental formations that may be arising. Confusion, interest, curiosity, frustration, annoyance. Feeling tone associated with that. And the consciousness of all of it. So right now, the experience that you're noticing can be understood through this framework of the five aggregates. Now, you don't have to kind of divide up your experience this way. You don't have to try to divide up your experience this way. I'm pointing to this because it is, there are times in which it's very useful to understand experience in this way. And the Buddha spoke about the sense of selfing coming up independence on these particular aspects of experience. So in his second discourse, the Anatta Lakana Sutta, the Buddha points to some of the main ways that we ex- consider experience to be self and why these aggregates are not self. So the first thing he points to in the sutta is that the, these aggregates, the tumbling on of these aggregates is not under our control, not under our ultimate control. And there is some way in which we control the body. For instance, I can think and decide I'm going to pick up the glass right now. So there's some measure of control that we have. But ultimately, it's pretty limited, the measure of control that we have. And the, um, the understanding, in a way, of maybe what we think of as self and where we get caught sometimes around the sense of self. In meditation, we may kind of feel like, you know, we're, we're watching our mind and the mind wanders and we get frustrated because I'm meditating. Why is my mind wandering? And I think I should be under, that should be under my control. Well, the wandering mind, the thought, the thinking mind is a mental formation. What the Buddha said about the lack of control. I'll, I'll read a couple of these. I won't go through all of them in the aggregates, but... Form is not self. 
If form were self, the body would not lend itself to affliction, and it would be possible to determine of the body. Let my body be thus. Let my body not be thus. But because form is not self, body leads to affliction, and it is not possible to say, let my body be thus. Let my body not be thus. Mental formations are not self. If mental formations were self, they would not lend themselves to affliction, and it would be possible to determine of mental formation. Let my mental formations be thus. Wouldn't that be nice? How often is that possible? We are seeing how rarely that is possible. Sometimes, sometimes our mind is amenable to that. May my mind have ease, and sometimes there's some ease, but much of the time, no. And the Buddha says, but because mental formations are not self, it is not possible to say of them, let my mental formations be thus, let them not be thus. It's not a mistake. It's the nature of experience to not be ultimately controllable. This should be a relief, actually. And yet we get to look at it. We get to observe it. We get to observe experience. And the amazing thing about this practice and this process is that the mental formation of wise mindfulness, also not self, wouldn't it be nice to say, may mindfulness be thus. (laughs) But the cultivation of this because of that other teaching around mental formations, um, mental formations shape experience. So when mindfulness arises, it tends to shape experience in a certain way. It tends to shape more mindfulness. It tends to shape wisdom and understanding. So this, we use this understanding to cultivate the wholesome, to observe and let go of the unwholesome. Mindfulness having this amazing property that we've talked about of when we bring attention to the wholesome, it increases the possibility, it increases its likelihood of coming up in the future. When we bring our mindful attention to the unwholesome, to the reactive states of mind, it creates the conditions for it to arise less frequently in our experience over time. So this aspect of control is a common way that we identify. We think we should, the sense of self thinks it should be in charge. And if it finds, if it runs up against not being in charge, there's suffering. And that feeling like I should be able to control my mind and be continuously mindful leads to suffering because we believe in that sense of control. It's just a process. And so the suffering around this imputation of control when, when we can just understand the uncontrollability of experience and not 
hold on to, I should be able to control. There's so much freedom. So much freedom. The next piece the Buddha points to in this sutta is around the impermanent nature of each of the aggregates. So they're uncontrollable. You can't ultimately control these processes tumbling on. And they're impermanent. They're arising and passing away. Body experience arising and passing away. Now the body, there is some stability to the body. And yet we understand the, through that reflections that John was pointing to this morning. I'm of the nature to age. I'm of the nature to sicken. I'm of the nature to die. The body is impermanent. Feelings are impermanent. The mental, the mental aspects of, of the aggregates are rapidly impermanent. When we start looking at feelings, feeling tone, we see how rapidly they change. A sensation arises and passes, and the feeling tone with that arises and passes. Sometimes there's a little more stability as the mind enters into states of concentration, for instance. There can be periods of multiple minutes or even a couple of hours that can have a stability of feeling tone, but ultimately it passes away. So we can be curious about the Buddha points to being curious about the impermanent nature of the aggregates. Perception arising and passing away. You walk into the dining hall, there's many perceptions. Perceptions about the food, perceptions about the people, perceptions about how I am in relationship to all of it. And then, and then the mental formations impermanent, all of the ideas and views and beliefs that are in relationship to those perceptions, all coming and going. Consciousness of all of it also coming and going. So the Buddha pointed to, these aggregates are impermanent. Because they are impermanent, they are unreliable. We cannot say, I can land on this and I will be happy. I can hold on to this thing forever and I will be happy. Because it will ultimately fall apart. It will ultimately dissipate. So the impermanent unreliable nature of experience, the Buddha then asks, does it make sense to call something that is impermanent and unreliable a self? And he answers no. He says it doesn't make any sense to call something that's impermanent and unreliable a self. And this is really kind of based on what maybe our intuitive sense of self is. You know, that we feel like a sense of self is something that's stable and going through time. Somehow we have this notion that I'm the same person that I was 10 years ago. There's something that's continuing. A kind of a process, a tumbling on of these aggregates. This process of the aggregates tumbling on is happening. But there's no stability there. And what we think of as self usually has some notion of stability. 
it also often has some notion of control, of the sense that if only I could control the experience, then I could have things be pleasant all the time. So this part of the sutta, in my kind of impressionistic reading of it, is really encouraging us to look at what do we call self? Like an investigation. What do, we, what do we think of as self? When it feels strong, what is it? What is that experience? So this is where Dogen's pointing, you know, get to know this experience. Study the sense of self. Explore, understand, just be curious about it. The sense of self in this, in the Buddha's understanding, in the Buddhist understanding, the sense of self is not nothing in that it is an arising experience. Like frustration is an arising experience. It's not nothing. There's resonances with that. There's that arising experience of frustration has this shaping aspect to it. It shapes our relationship to the next moment. It shapes our feeling. It shapes our body. It shapes our perceptions. It shapes our consciousness. And so the arising of these mental formations, these feelings, these emotions, has an effect. And we see that effect. We can feel that effect. We get to know that effect by looking at our mind states. The Buddha speaks of the sense of self as being a mental formation. It's an arising experience. The term that's used is sakaya ditti, identity view. It's an arising belief. Sense of self is a belief. And so it doesn't quite feel like emotion. It's more of a view. The sense of self is more of a view. So it's an arising experience that can be explored, that can be felt into, that can be known. So with respect to these aggregates, the Buddha pointed to different ways we identify. The first way he talked about is, I am this thing. I am form. I am feeling. I am perception. I am mental formation. I am consciousness. Now we can, as I go through these, you might just kind of listen to these and see if they resonate with something familiar for you. So for instance, I am the body. That's that identification with form. I am the body. I am this emotion. I am miserable. Before I met the practice, I uh, really identified as being miserable, unhappy, was never going to be happy, 
And there were times when I experienced happiness. And what my mind did when that happened was, well, yeah, now I'm, I'm happy now, but I know that really what I am is miserable. So it was identifying with the miserableness. I am miserable. Not understanding, not seeing that miserableness comes and goes like happiness comes and goes. Identifying with that. Identifying with mental functions. I'm the one who thinks. I'm the one who feels or knows. So that's one form of identification. I am something. Second form of identification is possessiveness. Something is mine. The body is mine. Things belong to me. Ideas are mine. I've suffered a lot around identifying with the ownership of ideas. That's the second one. The third one is a sense of being inside of something. For instance, I am inside of the body. Maybe that feeling is familiar. I've I've felt both of these different ways of, or all of these, that the body is mine, mine to do with what I want to. I am the body, and I am in the body. They're different, slightly different forms of identification. So I am in the body. Now the others for me, I I don't know that I feel all of these different. He goes through all five, all four of these ways of identifying against all five of the aggregates. So there's 20, you know, ways of personality view of identity view coming into being. And I mean, I've tasted a few of these. I I can't say that I understand what it means to be. I am inside of feeling that one doesn't quite resonate for me, but I am inside of consciousness. That one I've experienced at times that sense of identification in a state of deep concentration or deep, you know, kind of being inside of a space of vast consciousness or vast awareness. So a little identification in that beautiful, vast state. I'm inside of that. Or the next one is something is inside of me. Consciousness is in me. Emotions are in me. Again, the exploration of this is an encouragement to just be curious about how is the sense of self experienced? I don't encourage picking this up, trying to remember all of these and trying to think, okay, is it is it feeling that's inside of me or do I think I belong to feeling or is it mine? Just let this be kind of, again, the Dharma reign. 
there may be times where a strong identification comes up and there's a curiosity about observing it and perhaps a recognition of, wow, I really feel like I own this or I really feel like I am this. Believe it completely. I am miserable. That is who I am. So we may begin to see, see that and remember, okay, well, that's an identification. Just be curious. So in a more... Um, holistic way, we could say, or just a more kind of a way to just explore experience without trying to put all these categories and labels on it. I'm going to describe a few ways of exploring sense of self that I've experienced. There's so many different ways a sense of self is experienced. And one of the powers of this curiosity is just to begin to be curious, like when is a sense of self strong? And how long does that sense of self last? Is it the same sense of self that lasts all day long? Or are there a whole bunch of different senses of self arising? There are many many senses of self and identities that happen. One, um, one example of this was very stark in my, in my experience. One, one three-month retreat at IMS, um, there were questions in the hall in the morning, as we sometimes do here, and um, there was somebody who asked a question in the hall, and it created a whole huge papancha storm in my mind. This analytical sense of me arose, and I'm right, and I know what, how that question should be asked and how it should be responded to. And there was just this whole, like, me. It was so powerful. And it was pretty uncomfortable I was feeling the unpleasantness of this sense of self, the, the kind of clinging around it, the contraction around it. The morning question period ended, that sense of self was lingering. It was just there. And so I went out and do, did walking, and I was observing, watching the sense of self and feeling how contracted it was and how much it was like me and all of the analytical and how smart I was feeling and all of that. I was just feeling all of it. And it was all pretty um, challenging and unpleasant to be with. And I was doing walking right in front of the door at IMS and this huge truck drove up while I was doing walking meditation and it was loud and it was banging and the door opened and the brakes squealed and in a split second my mind switched from that analytical 40-year-old argumentative to a two-year-old. It's a truck! Oh my gosh, wow, that's so cool! 
And it was just like, and I think it was because I was watching that, curious about the sense of self. I didn't learn much about that sense of self except that it was suffering, (laughs) you know, in terms of how it was formed and all of that. I felt the suffering of it. But then what I got to see, when something happened, conditions changed, the mind was drawn to the big, noisy sound of the truck and just delighted in it like a two-year-old would. The impermanence of that sense of self, the complete unrelatedness of this new sense of self that was arising to that sense of self, just no connection whatsoever. Not even in the same ballpark. So we go through many senses of self and can switch in a moment. So, you know, curiosity. And I th- I'd say a good time to explore the sense of self is when it is pretty strong. You know, when it's a, a clear sense of identity coming up. Senses of self, I would say also, one one piece that's important to know and to understand and to honor, really honor about senses of self, is that senses of self have been constructed in our lives as strategies to navigate our world. Many of them have served us, helped us through big messes, helped us to find safety. And so in observing the sense of self, we can have this idea or an overlay of I'm supposed to see not self or I'm supposed to somehow get rid of these identities or I'm not supposed to have identities Identities are simply mental formations and they arise and can be known. Much as we talk about, you know, meeting our suffering, our difficult states of mind with like an honoring and a respecting, like, yeah, this is happening. Exploring the sa- the, these sense of identities in a similar way, honoring them, like almost bowing to them. Like that analytical me, that served me a lot. And there was a lot of clinging to it. And a lot of like thinking I needed to be right all the time and the suffering that came with that. But the pattern itself, you know, it's not wholly bad. It's just a pattern that was navigating life. And so the observing of it, hold it with a sense of care and respect. This is a part of this being that can be known and understood. That's a big piece that I want to emphasize in this exploration of when you see a sense of self. To not think of it as, well, I'm supposed to see the not self in this somehow. Just notice what you're noticing about this identity. 
how it's shaping things. So often when a sense of self feels really clear, it's often connected with habits and patterns, old, deep conditioning, identities around certain emotions, pride, shame, feeling of unworthiness, self-hatred, pattern that was very strong in my practice. And just having the patience to notice that sense of, I'm a failure, I'm no good. The courage to meet that, completely transformative. It's something that that pattern around self-hatred is something that I observed over the course of years. Times it was more powerful than my capacity to be mindful. And I had to simply set it aside and take a walk. At other times, there could be just the right there with it watching it arise. At one point, seeing the feeling of I'm a failure descend as I left the meditation hall, I went back to my room and realized, actually, there's some capacity to be with this. So I sat in meditation kind of late into the night, just watching, watching the arising of that. And I'd see that it was coming and going. That was a powerful piece. I could see it wasn't always there in that time. I was sitting and then there would be like, you're a failure. And I would just feel this shame and this like withering sense. And there it is. Contact, unpleasant. And then there would be a space and it would arise again. And I'd see it, contact, unpleasant, withering feeling. I just watched it, watched it appear, disappear, appear, disappear. At some point, the mind saw that arising thought, you're a failure. And it was right there with the thought as it arose seeing it arise out of nothing. No sense of, you know, not not a sense of uh, any shame or anything. It was just arising. This thought was just arising. And then the kind of recognition that what's going on here is I'm believing that thought. That's what's making this experience of self-hatred. That's what's making this identity is believing that thought. The seeing of that just in a moment, the self-hatred vanished. Very, very powerful seeing. The next moment was a moment of complete bliss. And then there was the idea, oh, I figured it out. (laughs) Never again. (laughs) And then I saw that. 
okay, yeah, probably not, you know. But, uh, and, and that kind of made the, the bliss be more just contentment, just like, yeah, right now, it's not here. And that moment was extremely powerful. It didn't get rid of all of those thoughts, but it really undermined the belief in those thoughts. So the pattern of self-hatred kind of, you know, went from this like deep rut that was nearly impossible to get out of to a kind of a wide valley that just, yeah, oh, there's that thought. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to believe that thought. So this investigation or curiosity, honoring of these patterns, not to get rid of them or fix them or change them, but to understand, as Kim mentioned the other night, the practice is to understand dukkha, understand the sense of self, understand it. The freedom comes with the understanding Let's sit for just a moment. Just remembering that you don't have to remember any of this. Just continue noticing what's arising and honoring meeting that with kindness and wisdom and wise attention, moment after moment. Thank you for listening to the Dharma. And we'll have some time for walking and then um, the chanting. I've picked a new chant for the evening after John did the reflections this morning. I asked, have we got that chant? Have we done that chant yet? So I have sheets for those and I'll put them out on the so pick them up on your way in and hopefully I have enough copies thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate